Philemon is the shortest book in the New Testament. Really not. It's one of about four one-chapter books as we would describe the way the New Testament is divided. It is the last of the 13 letters of Paul that are presented to us in the Scriptures. And it is a personal letter to an individual. There are three other such letters. Four of the 13 letters of Paul are addressed to to individuals arrest to local churches. So I'd like to read verses 1 through 3 of the book of Philemon. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Several years ago, at the height of his professional basketball career, it's arguable and probably accurate to say that the most sought-after endorser of anybody's product was Michael Jordan. Gatorade seized the day, came up with this slogan with Michael Jordan drinking a jug of Gatorade, Be Like Mike. Shortly thereafter, there was a book written about Michael Jordan, written by a man named Pat Williams. He was the general manager of the professional basketball team, the Orlando Magic, and it simply was entitled, How to Be Like Mike. And then, in the wave of this celebrity, a movie was produced by Hollywood. It was about a 14-year-old boy who loved basketball more than anything else. He would daydream about what it would be like to be a professional basketball player, but not just any professional basketball player. How it would be to be Michael Jordan himself. One day, he was walking home from school. And he noticed a pair of sneakers on the side of the road. And he went over and he picked them up. And inside one of those shoes were the initials MJ. He thought, could it be? Did Michael Jordan wear these shoes? They were rather worn. Is this what I think it is? He sat down. He put the shoes on, taking his off. Rather than going directly home, he goes to a playground, starts playing basketball, and lo and behold, he has all the attributes of excellence in basketball that Michael Jordan had. And the story goes on. He becomes an NBA star, and of course, that's a big dream, isn't it? Pipe dream that a lot of young kids have who are interested in sports or other areas of endeavor. We might be able to be like Michael Jordan in what we drink and what we wear, but not in what we achieve. There's only one Michael Jordan. With all deference to Kobe Bryant, God rest his soul, and LeBron James. There is someone whom we can be like, though. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. I'm talking about the Apostle Paul. You might say, I know the Bible says it would be like Christ, and you would be right. But that can be overwhelming, intimidating, 
on the surface of things. How can we, as flawed human beings, be like Jesus? I'll address that if I don't forget it before the sermon is over. We can be like Paul, though, in light of the fact that millions of people have desired to be like Michael Jordan. I would venture to guess, willing to bet, that even more people have desired to be like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And then to the book of Philippi, the letter to the Philippians, he says, what you have learned or heard or read from me or seen in me, put it into practice. The Apostle Paul seems like an egomaniac saying such things were it not for the fact that the Holy Spirit of God inspired him to write these in what we know as our Bible. All scriptures God breathed. The Holy Spirit gave Paul that word to deliver to the Corinthians and to the individual Philemon and by way of association to us too. So how was Paul himself able to imitate Christ? Here's how. Christ in him was his hope of glory. It's true for us too. And he was not e- eager to draw attention to himself. Paul was not. He had spent all of his life prior to meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus trying to build a resume as being the greatest Jewish rabbi of his generation. And he was going gangbusters when he was intercepted by Christ, struck blind on the road to Damascus, and gave his life to the Lord. And in the moment that he received Christ, it's not just so much verbiage when the Bible says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. It's something that actually occurs the moment a person gives his life or her life to Christ. And the Bible says, these are the words of Paul again, I have been crucified with Christ, not yet I, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the body, I live by the faith of the Son of God who lives in me. That's how he lived this life. This is how he could imitate Jesus. This is how you and I can imitate Paul and, in effect, imitate Christ. And it's important that we understand this. The Holy Spirit says to us today, be like Paul. And we need to see the way Paul views himself in these three verses. What we typically do, I think it's true of you as well as me. When we come to read the introduction of one of Paul's letters, we tend to just sort of skim over that. We want to get to the meat, don't we? And not have to deal with all the formalities that seem to be a part of the writing of his letters. But remember, they're just as much God's Word as the rest. And there's great instruction here. There are four viewpoints that Paul shows in these three verses about himself that are actually true of you, if you know Christ. The first of which is, he saw himself as a brother. We read from the book of Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. 
I don't know if you noticed verse 8. He says, let no, no one call you rabbi, for there is only one teacher, and you are all brothers. And we could include, or sisters. Brother, sister. In the language of the New Testament, this is the way the word sister sounds. Adelpha. Philadelphia. In, includes that word. It means sister. Sister. Adelphos is the male counterpart, the word for brother. And both of those words literally mean from the same womb. We have a common parent if we are in Christ. And we're not left to guess who that is. It's in this text, is it not? Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God is our Father. And as I mentioned just a moment ago, the way in which we become his child, John spells it out. We have to receive Christ and believe in him as our Lord and Savior. And the word receive, by the way, is a word which means to welcome with open arms. It's the word which is used elsewhere in the New Testament and outside the New Testament, contemporary to the New Testament in Greek culture to describe someone who greets and welcomes a guest and embraces the person and brings that person in. Not sitting, waiting, but goes and meets the person and brings that person into his home or her home. That's exactly what we do when we receive Jesus. We don't set down some guidelines for Jesus being welcome in our home. He establishes the guidelines for us having that kind of relationship with Him. And that has to do with our yielding ourselves to Christ. And here in this greeting in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the name which appears first here. And it's not unique to Philemon. It's all over the Bible. What shall I do to be saved is what a man said in Philippi, a jailer, a guy who had lived a life that we can't imagine in terms of the brutality he meted out and probably the brutality he experienced at the hands of his superiors. He said, what must I do to be saved to Silas and to the Apostle Paul? And this is what he was told. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we become brothers and sisters? We receive Christ. But underneath that, it's important that we pay attention to the word grace and the phrase grace to you in verse 3. Do you know what grace is? Simply put, it's unmerited favor. It's the basis upon which you, if you do know God, know God. It's His initiative. One great Bible teacher said this, it's God stooping, God condescending, God humbling himself in the person of Jesus Christ, becoming one of us, taking on human flesh, suffering all the indignities that came his way because of who he was. God become man and all of the things he had to endure in terms of ridicule and ultimate death on a cross It's the grace of God that makes it possible for us to become children of God. But this life, most of us here, I would suspect, 
are people who already know Christ as our Lord and Savior. Right? We've already trusted in Him alone for salvation. We've accepted the free gift of God through Jesus Christ. He's come to indwell us. So how do we be like Paul? How are we to be like Christ? How does this work? Well, it's by grace. That's how. In the book of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul makes this statement. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul was a magnificent specimen of a disciple of Christ. But he wanted those whom he led to understand they were not to worship him. They were not to stand in awe of him. Rather, they were to stand in awe of the God who chose him and used him. It was his power, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the person of Jesus Christ who gave him the power to live. We read from Psalm 24 to begin our time of worship this morning. It says, Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. This is talking about our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, to the people who are struggling against the powers of evil, just like you and I do. People who are brothers and sisters in Christ, he said, be strong in the might of God. There is power in the Lord who gives us the power to live the Christian life. Paul writing to Timothy says, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Timothy was already a believer. He'd already received the grace of God, which introduced him into the family of God. But there was a lot of work to be done in his life and through his life from the time he received Christ as probably a teenager until his life ended decades later. Probably we don't know the exact date of his death, but it's safe to say he lived several decades after he came to know Christ and served the Lord. But the good news is that we who have Christ, have that same power. The Christian life is not to be used be used, and really abused by our wanting what we can get from it. It is to be a life that's lived in dependence upon the Lord. And it cannot be lived except by the grace of God, trusting in Him for everything in our lives. Timothy was one who knew what it meant to be a brother to Philemon. You notice it says, Timothy is our brother, not just Paul's, but Timothy's too. You know, we don't get to select our physical brothers and sisters, do we? And we don't always get along with our physical brothers and sisters. Anybody here has just had a perfect relationship with your siblings? Probably not. But God chose your physical siblings too. But it's true in the body of Christ as well. Sometimes there's so many of us who know Christ who gather together that if we don't like somebody, we can avoid them. And we do very well at that, unfortunately, at times. But here we see that this fellow, Paul, speaks to Philemon in verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The background of the word peace 
is the word shalom in the Old Testament. Shalom was a greeting, and to this day still is a greeting, between Jewish people when they meet, using their language, the Hebrew language, or even the Aramaic language. And what does it mean? It means the best which life can offer. When we as Westerners think about peace, we think of the absence of conflict. Grace and peace to you. Where does our peace come from if we have this peace in relationships? We can't pick it out of thin air. We can't, based upon our temperament, sustain peace with everybody because we rub people the wrong way and they rub us the wrong way as well. But in Christ, we have His peace that passes all understanding. It's the best which life has to offer. We have that to offer to each other, and we should supply it to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul was not ashamed of calling his brothers people who, whom he loved, the beloved. The background of that word, of course, is the uniquely New Testament word, which means the sacrifice of self in the service of others. It's not... Self-conscious, it's the very opposite of being self-centered or self-conscious. It's the kind of life that gives itself away unstintingly to other people. Proverbs 17, 17, many of you know this. It says, a brother is born for adversity. This is true for us who know Christ. This is what God wants for us, that we have the kind of relationships with each other that Paul had with Philemon and with Timothy. That we are people who have each other's backs, as it were. The word adversity in the Hebrew language means horrific torment at the hands of a decided enemy. We are in a battle, the Bible says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And their leader is none other than Satan himself. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 5, he is our adversary. He is the ruler of this world. The world is opposed to us who know Christ. And we have an internal enemy that's probably more influential than Satan or his dominion in the world. It's our own selfishness. Even as believers, we still have to battle what the Bible calls the flesh. We need to learn how to submit ourselves to the Lord, asking him to take control of that aspect of who we are. But our enemy comes against us. A brother does not abandon you or me when we are in such an adverse circumstance. Do you have someone like that in your life? A more important question for you to ask and me to ask, am I like that for somebody else who's a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ? Am I like Timothy? Paul talks about Timothy who was a wonderful brother. He talks about him in the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verse 20. He says, I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And the word welfare is closely akin to this Hebrew word shalom. A brother, a sister who understands who she is by grace, created for peacemaking. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God the ultimate peacemaker. We have been born again for this purpose, to glorify the Lord, but to minister to other people. Do you have such a person in your life? Are you such a person? 
We can't make people like us or love us. What we've learned if we've grown much in Christ is that's not even the right question to ask, is it? We're just to be who we are in Christ. Lovers of our brothers in Christ. In Proverbs 18.24, the Word of God says, A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. We know who he is. It's Jesus Christ, right? He's the only one who will never let us down. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And even the best friend you and I have in Christ, the best brother or the best sister in Christ, that person occasionally will let us down. Not so Jesus. He sticks closer than a brother. I think of one character from literature and film, Samwise Gamgee. Do you know Sam? Sam was a great person. He was an incredible friend. He was, in effect, a brother to Mr. Frodo Baggins. He provided for Frodo. He protected him. He even saved his life. That's a brother, isn't it? What a friend he was. And as he was helping Frodo get to Mordor and the mountain of fire to throw the ring into that molten lava and therefore break the curse and bring extended peace to Middle Earth. This is what he said to him. I cannot carry the ring for you, Mr. Frodo, but I can carry you. Are you that kind of brother or sister in Christ? You can't do what God's calling that person to do. But we can bear one another's burdens. That's what the Bible says in the book of Galatians. We are to be burden bearers. And there's great joy in this. I wish we had time to explore the relationship between Jonathan, the heir apparent to being king of Israel, and David, the eighth son of a shepherd, Jesse, and how God chose David rather than Jonathan, who was being primed to become king, to be the king. And Jonathan recognized that. Instead of becoming jealous and trying to eliminate David, he saw what God was doing. He gave him his robe. He gave him his armor. He gladly submitted himself. What a friend. He's a picture of Christ, I think, to us. That is Jonathan. In Proverbs 17, 9, the Bible says, He who overlooks offenses loves much. Love covers a multitude of sins. It does not excuse them. And by the way, cover, may I talk about that with you just a moment? In the Old Testament, the word cover typically means something that is paid for, atoned for. The word atonement means covering. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He covered us. He laid down His life for us. When Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that He laid down His life for His friends, the word lay down literally means to lay over. That's exactly what Christ did, isn't it? When He died for us, when He took our punishment for us, He lay His life over And when we know Christ and we understand what He's done for us and that He indwells us and we trust Him to live His life through us, He will move us to be this kind of brother or sister in relationship to those other members of the body of Christ. 
Let's go on now and look at the second sort of person Paul was. He was a brother. I believe it's the tag he would have worn most gladly. It's wonderful to know that there are to be no differences in terms of importance in the church. Do you understand this? We're all one in Christ, brothers and sisters. He also calls himself in this passage of Scripture a prisoner of Christ. That's sort of odd, isn't it? A prisoner of Christ? Paul was technically a prisoner of Rome, and seven of the 13 letters of Paul were written from a prison cell. So God used his difficulty to slow him down enough to put truth from pen to papyrus, and it's been preserved for us. Thank God that he was a prisoner. And it's not uncommon for us who know Christ to be prisoners of Jesus Christ, albeit spiritual prisoners. Paul was captivated by Jesus Christ. I'd like you to keep your place here and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to read two verses from this epistle of Paul, verses 4 and 5. It would be best for us really to begin with verse 3 and read through verse 5. 2 Corinthians 10, 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh, Paul uses the word flesh not in a negative way here. He's talking about we walk in this skin, in these bodies. But we don't wage war with weaponry that is used in war between people who are warring as human beings with no spiritual connotation. Verse 4 says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every, listen, thought captive to obey Christ. This is what it means to be a prisoner of Christ. To refer all of life to Christ. He is Lord of all, it's been said, are not Lord at all. His Lordship is not conditional, it's unconditional. We are to have him as our Lord all the time, putting him in his place of mastery in our lives. Are you a prisoner of Jesus Christ today? You can be, you know. You may feel trapped in a relationship, a job, a body, a city, a church. You may feel trapped. I've known people who are members of a church that I pastored, and maybe this church for that matter. You've been wanting to leave this church for a long time. The Lord just won't let you. It's amazing. You stay. Why? You see yourself as being answerable to Christ. Wherever you are. We know the Bible says that where the Lord is, there is peace as we trust Him. Martin Niemöller was a prominent pastor in World War II Germany. Initially, he was somewhat open to Hitler when he came to power in the late 1930s. But he always reserved 
full allegiance to him. And later he began to take exception with the Third Reich. He found himself in prison as a result. One of his friends, who was a volunteer chaplain in that prison, did not know Niemöller was imprisoned. For Niemöller had only been there a short while. But this man, who was a pastor himself, was doing his round and he was ministering to inmates. And he saw Niemöller and he was shocked. He said, why are you here? And then Niemöller responded by saying, why aren't you here? Talking about how that man, from Niemöller's perspective, had compromised the gospel. Niemöller was a prisoner for Christ, just as the Apostle Paul was. We overcome the stigma and the really irritation if the down, it's not the downright persecution of being in a prison of some sort. But we must understand where the Lord is, there is peace. Here's a third thing that Paul describes himself as. What's the first thing? A brother. This time he describes himself as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And now he describes himself as a fellow worker. Look at the middle of verse 1. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. Paul was a worker. In speaking to the Ephesian elders before he was going to be imprisoned in Rome, he was on the beach there and talking to them. And he said this, You know, while I was with you, see these hands? You know, I earned a living for myself by working. I learned earned a living also for others in my group, the men who travel with me. I, I ministered to them with my hands. He was a tent maker. And so he knew how to work with his hands. He understood that being a Christian is not retiring from the world. It's really becoming salt and light. And in the course of his making tents, he found opportunities to minister to people who would be in that trade too and to customers who would come. Be sure he didn't separate his Christian life from his business life. He integrated the two. Undoubtedly, he did that. And he found a way to minister to people. But he was a fellow worker of Philemon in a different way. Philemon, as far as we know, was not a tent maker. More importantly, he was God's fellow worker. This is the way he describes himself in the book of First Corinthians 3. He said about himself and a couple of his companions there who were ministering in the church at Corinth. He said, we are God's fellow workers. I don't know what your job is in life. We have people in this place who are way up the socioeconomic ladder. And we have others who are near the bottom. But we who know Christ are his children. We're his brothers. Younger brothers were the children of God. We are prisoners of Christ. He uses us in difficult places. But also we are God's fellow workers. What could be more dignifying than that? I'm not talking about being a preacher. I'm not talking about being a missionary. I'm talking about being a Christian and understanding that each person who knows Jesus Christ is a minister. Did you know that? That's what the Bible says. We are a priesthood of believers. And a priest is responsible for putting people in touch with God and God in touch with people. I like what John MacArthur says. 
about himself in contrast to his congregation. He says, to people who are on the outside of Christianity looking in, they see me or hear me, they see a paid salesman. But when they look at you, they see a satisfied customer. That's a good way of understanding. You are on mission. You are, if you know Christ. You've been called out of darkness into His marvelous light. For what purpose? To declare the excellencies of God in a world that is in darkness and needs the light to shine on them through you. The work that he and Philemon and Timothy did was the building up of the church. Notice, this is kind of interesting in the last part of verse 2. And Aphia, our sister, probably the wife of Philemon, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, Archippus, probably the son of Philemon and Aphia. If we were to go to Colossians 4, 6, 17, we see another, another reference to him. Philemon lived in Colossae, Colossians, Colossae, and it's likely that Archippus was the pastor of the church in Colossae. And where did the church meet? In Philemon and Apphia's house. Obviously, they had means enough to have a large enough place, but they also had to have an even bigger heart to let people come into their home and worship. It was not until the third century A.D., over 200 years or about 200 years after Philemon received this letter that the first Christian church building was erected. Over two centuries, the church met in homes. As the elders have discussed and prayed about COVID-19 and the aftermath of it, the effects of it, there have been a lot of negative effects. There have been a lot of positive effects. And there's been a lot of communication, I believe, from the Lord to churches like ours and to their leaders. And one thing we sense is that God wants us to, by His leadership, very deliberately, very biblically, to begin to establish centers in homes for church life. Because... How rapidly COVID-19 came, and we weren't ready for it, frankly. But we are brothers in Christ. We are fellow workers. We are prisoners of Christ. We want to work together, don't we? So, more on that later. How can the work of the church be done? Aren't pastors supposed to do the work? Yeah, But what is my job? What are the pastor's jobs? Here's the primary job. It's not running the church. That's like running a business. No knock on running a business. But we weren't called to be businessmen. We're called to be shepherds. We're called to look after the flock, to feed the flock, to feed the flock the Word of God. This is what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4. He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists. Others to be pastor teachers for the building up of the body of Christ so that the members of the body of Christ would do the work. And the word work means ministry of the church. Can you imagine if we did our job properly and you were properly equipped to do the life God has called you to do, how rapidly the gospel would spread? 
the separation methodologically between me and others like me and you who are not pastors or missionaries, that has been a tragedy in many cases. Because it's given the impression that you can't be used by God. To the contrary, if we're a biblical church, you are the key. I have a responsibility, and I'm not trying to in any way demean this responsibility. It's very important. However, if that's all you had, you've got a preacher teller, that's all you got, then the church will not grow as God would have it to. I'm talking about I'm talking about numbers, but numbers are secondary. I'm talking about growing spiritually, because when we grow spiritually, then we cannot help but reproduce spiritually. This is what we have to look forward to in the days to come in our church. Who is the general contractor of this church? It's Jesus, right? He is the Lord. He is the one who gives the directions. Let's look at the last thing about Paul that he says. In addition to being a brother and a prisoner, he was also a worker, fellow worker. He's a soldier, too. He talks to Archippus, our fellow soldier. Our weaponry is not like the world's. We've talked about that. If you want a deeper discussion of that, go to the book of Ephesians, chapter 6. It's evangelism, prayer, disciple-making. How many of you have been in the military? Just by a show of hands. How many of you? Look around the room. Easily a fourth of you have been in the military. Thank you for your service. Only a soldier could really appreciate this metaphor. A soldier. A soldier's life is hard, focused, and submitted. When you took the oath that made you a military person serving the United States of America, that was a sobering moment, wasn't it? Not only was it a sobering moment, it was an empowering moment as well. Because you had been enlisted in the Army, the Navy, the Marines, the Air Force, the Coast Guard of the United States of America to defend this country, to do the bidding of the President and the Congress to protect our borders, to protect the internal workings. But being a soldier implies a commander, doesn't it? In the book of Second Timothy 2, verse 2 and 3, Actually, it's three and four. Excuse me. This is what Paul writes Timothy. Endure hardship like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure it with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. For no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian matters. Rather, that person wants to please his commanding officer. Who is our commanding officer? We know who our contractor is. Who's our commanding officer? They're one and the same. Jesus Christ is our commanding officer. As I begin to finish this message, three words come to mind regarding soldiers. Submission. That's true of us who know Christ, isn't it? We must deny ourselves. That's submission. Sacrifice. Take up your cross. How frequently? Daily. 
We have to die to ourselves. We need to deny ourselves, say no to ourselves. We need to be willing to take up our cross in ministry and be willing to die in that mission that we have been given. And the last is self-discipline. Follow me. It's worth noting that the first two commands, deny yourself and take up your cross, those are not ongoing activities. It's a one-time event, a second-time event. And then the last one, though, follow me, it requires a lot of self-discipline. It's a present tense commandment, which means keep on following me. As long as you are in this world, you keep on following me. There's no retirement from being a soldier of Christ, none. And I'm quite happy about that myself. Not that I'm warlike by nature, but it's nothing like being in the service of such a commander. One who never makes a mistake. One who never bails out. One who's never going to cease to exist. This is our Lord. Imitate me. As I imitate Christ. In the book, The Brothers Karamazov by Tolstoy, one of the figures, one of my, it probably is my favorite figure, Zosima. He was a priest in the Russian Orthodox Church. He was a kindly man. He made this statement. He said, What is Christ's word without an example? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus has his word, it's powerful. Changes lives. Nobody's saved apart from the Word of God. But Christ wants examples who behave the way He intends for brothers and sisters in Christ to behave with one another, who are people who are committed to being workers in the kingdom of God. The harvest is plentiful, Jesus said, but the workers are few. To be soldiers of Christ, following Him. And certainly, we are also to be people who are willing to be prisoners for Christ. The postmodern age has been a different age for us who are not part of that generation. But my reading has indicated, in my observation, by the way, is that people in that group of our country, the world really, are looking basically for three things in life. Community, authenticity, and spirituality. This country is becoming more spiritual, but less Christian. And a large part of it is because they don't sense anything spiritual in a church when they come to a church like ours. They are looking for community and all they have is a meeting and no relationship opportunity in building a body of believers. And they're wanting people who are real. They want us to be real. We above all people are most qualified. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about any church who's a real church. We are qualified to meet the criteria of the normal postmodern person. And there's a whole world of spiritually minded people who need Christ and they need to have an example of Him in people like me and you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You that Paul was like You. 
Thank You that You saved Him and You moved Him to write this letter to Philemon and You preserved it for over 2,000 years almost now. Thank You, Lord. Help us as a church to be like Jesus and help us as individuals to be like Paul. We surrender our lives to You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.